The world's wireless systems are going through a major technology transformation through fifth-generation cellular networks, known as 5G for short. In addition to lightning speed downloads for your smartphones and faster speeds for your favorite streaming videos, 5G is expected to help the growth and adoption of other cutting-edge technologies like connected cars, drones, industrial robots, AR, VR, medicine, and next-gen supply chains. Indeed, the power and potential of 5G and its role in giving the United States a competitive edge is such that it is a national security asset, one that the U.S. government is aggressively moving to protect from security vulnerabilities and cyber attacks, especially from 5G rival and geopolitical nemesis China, while pushing our allies to do the same. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. Here to talk about what the U.S. government is doing to protect global 5G technology is Rob Strayer. He's a former U.S. State Department ambassador and deputy assistant secretary of state. Strayer is now a technology executive at the Information Technology Industry Council, representing 80 of the most innovative tech companies in markets around the globe. While at the State Department, he led the development of U.S. foreign policy on a wide range of technology policy issues, including privacy, data protection, artificial intelligence, technical standards, cybersecurity, and 5G supply chain security. He also led the negotiations with foreign governments about these issues. Rob, welcome to Techtopia. Pleasure to be with you. For those of us who are not entirely familiar with the power and potential of 5G, what are these 5G networks and why are they so transformative? So 5G is the, is the natural evolution from what had been earlier generations of 2G, 3G, and 4G, each of which had expanded capabilities for wireless telecommunications. With 5G, we're seeing, as you said in the opening, uh, increased amount of throughput of data in the network, but also something called ultra-reliability and low latency. That is the time it takes for a device to connect to the network and then receive information back from the network. So we all think of that typically on our desktops as the time it takes to receive information from an internet website. Uh, a huge transformation in 5G will be that, whereas in 4G and earlier generations, we thought of it as uh, the ability to text on our phones or in 4G, the killer app was the ability to download uh, internet web pages onto our smartphone devices. With 5G, it'll be much more about the ability for machines and other devices to connect directly with each other without uh, coming to our personal uh, 5G uh, wireless device. There'll be all kinds of other internet of things devices being connected on these 5G networks. And it's fascinating. I was reading that uh, the these sort of technical ground rules that you know define how cellular networks work and how computer chips and radio signal, signals handle and exchange data. Uh, I guess a lot of these co telecom companies come together and agree on these rules every ten years. So it is a pretty big deal, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost occurred on a regular basis. Every ten years, there's a massive amount of effort that goes into setting these standards. There's something called the third generation partnership project, which uh, with its third generation name was actually set up for 3G, but that same consortium of standards bodies that are representing both governments and private sector entities ranging from telecom operators, you know, to think about the carriers, but also the equipment makers for all parts of the network are, are all involved in the establishment of these standards. So we now have standards for 5G and eventually we'll have 
in probably less than a decade standards for 6G. And the U.S. government auctioned off the wireless spectrum to make this happen. It's auctioned it off to companies like Verizon and AT&T and other telecom companies to make this happen. So where are we in the proliferation of 5G in the U.S. to date? And, and what has been the impact? Well, just focusing first on the importance of spectrum. Spectrum really does enable uh, telecommunications devices and additional uh, devices to be on networks, more data to be transmitted, even as uh, it becomes more efficient through devices and standards to transmit that data. You do need the spectrum, which is a scarce asset. That is, it can only be used for one purpose at one time. So the United States and other countries as well have been auctioning off spectrum. Uh, many folks think of spectrum in roughly three general categories, one being low band, mid band, and high band spectrum, which is the frequency category for that different spectrum. Uh, in 5G especially, the U.S. is focused on putting millimeter wave or that high frequency spectrum uh, into the hands of operators. That, that high frequency spectrum can carry the most amount of data. Uh, it's also been very important to see more of this mid-band spectrum to be put out for the operators. That mid-band is kind of sits the sweet spot of having wide penetration, that is the distance that it can travel, as well as being able to carry a good amount of data in, in each frequency band, but maybe not as much as they would in the millimeter wave bands. Um, in, as far as the deployments, uh, the major telecom operators in the United States are in the process of deploying. They've all hit dozens of cities with 5G ready uh, baseband units, that is the, the, the towers and the infrastructure that's on them uh, to transmit 5G frequency to uh, wireless devices, including our handheld devices that in many cases now are able to receive that millimeter wave or special frequency bands that are associated with 5G. So the rollout is continuing in the US and it's gonna continue for several years more. But as I said uh, earlier, it's gonna be important not just for handheld and consumer devices as we, that we traditionally think of as part of wireless telecommunications, but for those uh, communications through 5G to reach uh, other purposes, for example, uh, robotic uh, manufacturing or uh, autonomous vehicles to be reached directly through these networks. And you mentioned other countries, you know, it's amazing. This is not just a US phenomenon, right? This is a global technology transformation with all these countries rolling out this technology. Uh, it's fascinating. And you've been sort of in the forefront of watching that evolve. Tell us what that's been like. Yeah, I had a remarkable opportunity while I was at the State Department to be part of discussions with other countries about the promise of 5G, its great transformative potential uh, as they all seek to gain economically. Uh, there will be a tremendous amount of economic growth based on 5G because 5G is not just about empowering telecommunications companies and that particular sector, but all sorts of other companies in different sectors ranging from healthcare to transportation uh, to education will be enabled and will be able to do more and therefore produce more economic growth based on having and integrating 5G technology into their current uh, technology suites of applications that they're, they're using in their particular sectors. So it was real great to be able to talk to um, uh, leaders and, and officials in countries as well as private sector leaders um, around the world about the promise of 5G and to collaborate and bring together them in many cases with people from our 
Federal Communications Commission or with our uh, uh, National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, that's at the Commerce Department to collaborate and plan together on these uh, policies that will enable a rapid rollout of 5G and one that's also secure. And you were until recently the U.S. government's top cyber diplomat. What do you see as the big threats to our 5G infrastructure and, and uh, national security uh, in terms of the, the top issues that keep kept you up at night? Yeah, well, most fundamentally, uh, because 5G will empower so many new uses in various sectors of the economy, it really makes it a foundational part of our critical infrastructure. So if you're having healthcare rely on 5G, uh, the provision of electricity live on 5G or empowering what are known as uh, uh, smart cities that have everything from energy to uh, various applications and homes all running on 5G. If one could disrupt that or cause that not to work as, in the way that it appears to be working, that could have a very damaging effect on, on our society and, and disrupt it. So in the more technical sense, uh, it's what we refer to as having the availability confidentiality uh, uh, of, of and, and uh, consistency of these, uh, these networks. And why is China viewed as such a threat to US 5G security and competitiveness in particular? Well, the, the fundamental issue for the US government with, uh, with Chinese technology in this area that's empowering critical infrastructure is its um, national security law and other uh, legal mechanisms within China that are not susceptible to uh, transparency and due process through an independent judiciary. And that allows the uh, authoritarian government in China to uh, make commands on uh, what are nominally private sector entities to take actions that are not going to be in the interests of uh, the public or nations outside of China, again, without uh, transparency or, or due process. That could mean that uh, you know there could be compromises to software. So much of 5G is not just about hardware, but the software that it runs on, that the code, which needs to be frequently updated to patch even uh, nominally uh, innocent uh, security issues with the software could be manipulated uh, or there could be intentional additions of uh, flaws in that software uh, over time. So it's, it's really important that you have trustworthy companies in a, in a trustworthy relationship with a, a government that's involved in, in 5G technology. So the Trump administration had embarked on a really big campaign to improve security communication standards and a large part of that campaign on the home front and globally involved banning uh, Huawei, the Chinese uh, telecom giant, and of course ZTE Corporation and other Chinese companies from its uh, 5G platforms. Um, what were some of those measures and, and have they worked? So the, um, the US government did under, undertake a campaign domestically to protect its telecommunications infrastructure. Uh, that was largely led by the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, it initially prohibited the use of what is called the Universal Service Fund, that is public money that's set up to help subsidize the rollout of telecommunications to rural or underserved areas. Uh, it prohibited that to be used for untrustworthy uh, telecom vendors for 5G. It's subsequently now uh, undertaken a proceeding to look at whether any telecommunications provisioning of, of any type of equipment uh, used by the public in the United States should uh, be able to be uh, include 
uh, untrustworthy vendors. And on the international front too, the U.S. government has been convincing our allies not to use equipment from Huawei or ZTE. Uh, and there were mixed results at first, right? What were some of the obstacles to that persuasion campaign? Yeah, that is what I was fundamentally involved in uh, while I was at the State Department. Um, and we started a campaign in uh, 2018 to start educating our partners about the fundamental importance of 5G and that it needed to be secure in ways that they may not have considered uh, previously. Uh, at first, there were issues with uh, or concerns in some cases raised about the low price coming from uh, some of the Chinese vendors that had been considered to be lower than the uh, equipment coming from the two dominant Nordic vendors, which are uh, Sweden's Ericsson and Finland's Nokia. Uh, we've also recently seen that Samsung has emerged on the market as a major 5G uh, player providing this uh, aggregated uh, network uh, for the radio portion of, of 5G. So uh, many countries and operators were reluctant to go uh, what they perceived to be with something that was more expensive than the very low cost that they could get from uh, the Chinese vendors. In addition to the actual price of the equipment, there was the financing issue. Uh, in many cases, uh, there were very low interest loans provided to help facilitate the sales of this uh, as telecom equipment. You know, often this the equipment is a major capital expenditure for telecom operators. Therefore, if you can prolong even the beginning of payments on a loan or achieve very low interest rate loans on that uh, equipment, uh, it can provide a major advantage to a vendor that has access to uh, below way below market financing. And, and But last June, I guess, it was uh, Britain said it would bar Huawei and ZTE from its 5G uh, wireless networks. And it sort of seems to be part of this uh, gradual but steady global push away from from Chinese uh, equipment. Uh, and, and it was uh, considered a pretty big loss for China. What were some of the factors that went into Britain's decision and what did that mean for the U.S. in terms of its its uh, campaign to convince other countries to to listen to its advice not to to go with the with the Chinese uh, companies? And so through our uh, diplomatic efforts that that begun, as I mentioned earlier, in around 2018 and accelerated into 2019, the United States undertook a campaign to educate partners about the security risks about the true costs of ownership, about the availability of other finance mechanisms to help equal and level the playing field for using trusted vendors for technology. Uh, an important development occurred, uh, really was a culmination of many efforts, but, it, but uh, the capstone of it was in January of 2020 when the uh, European Union, after almost a year of review when coming up with its own assessment tools for 5G came out with something called the uh, European Union's 5G toolbox. And within that review process, it established that there of course needs to be very technical measures for protecting 5G technology, but also something known as non-technical or strategic measures to protect the, tech, the technology and the availability for both businesses and consumers to trusted communications. And uh, as a subset of that, non-technical analysis, uh, the European Union said there's something such a, known as high-risk vendors, and these high-risk vendors should not have access to sensitive or provide the sensitive parts of 5G networks. 
and they had a further way to, to define uh, what are high-risk vendors, including vendors that have non-transparent ownership mechanisms, that have a history of unethical practices, and importantly, uh, vendors that might be under the influence, uh, undue influence of a third party, a third nation, uh, where there are not democratic checks and balances on that government's authority over that vendor. And of course, that would apply in the circumstances of China and Chinese vendors. So that important development uh, in January 2020 and its implementation through the member states in the, sub the subsequent months. And then, as you mentioned, uh, you know, while the uh, United Kingdom was leaving the uh, European Union, it adopted, a, I think, a largely similar understanding of, of having to uh, uh, pay attention to the non-technical risk factors uh, led to its decision uh, in the summer of 2022 to ban Huawei or ban Huawei equipment from its networks. It already previously banned ZTE. And it's not just the UK, I guess, you know, the five eyes, the most influential intelligence community, our allies, you know, Britain, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand now, all of them have excluded Chinese companies from their 5G networks. Uh, that seems to be a, a pretty big uh, diplomatic win uh, for the United States and could possibly affect how other countries are implementing their 5G technologies, right? The rest of Europe? Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, there are, um, if you will, uh, de jure, that is uh, legal statements by some governments about the steps they're taking to prohibit certain technology, but other ones have a more of a de facto approach because they apply very rigorous standards, uh, in some cases applying those European Union 5G toolbox standards uh, to its telecom operators through various regulations, causing there to be a de facto uh, prohibition on untrusted uh, vendors. So uh, it, there is, a, I think, a groundswell of change uh, that's occurred in the last two years and an awareness of, of the, the risk and uh, actions by government, but also a lot of the telecom operators themselves independently uh, deciding that they need to take steps to secure their networks in ways that they had not before. And, but if you take all of these countries, right, that still sort of represents half the global market, right? Since China is, is so dominant and controls almost half the market. So how does that figure in terms of the math of it and being able to, to secure these uh, critical infrastructures? That's a very good point. Um, it is the uh, countries that we've been talking about that were, are moving most quickly to uh, deploy 5G in their in their domestic markets uh, the rest of the world is looking at improving their 3g and 4g networks and then eventually having 5g networks that will be an important area of focus uh, policy focus and diplomatic focus for the united states and other countries in the in the coming years uh, in those markets in particular price will be a very influential uh, factor in the telecom operators uh, decisions uh, in part because price is so much more important to the ability of consumers to even have a wireless device in many of those developing markets. Um, for that reason, uh, the financing is going to be really important. The United States has made steps to make it uh, financing available in partnerships sometimes with other countries um, through its what is called the Export-Import Bank or the Development Finance Corporation, which is a two 
uh, financing institutions that are funded by the U.S. government uh, in order to help uh, allow U.S. exports uh, to have a, an advantage or at least a fair playing field in various developing world markets. I read this fascinating story in May about you know this uh, U.S.-backed consortium that beat China in this multi-billion-dollar telecom auction in Ethiopia to build its 5G network. And this consortium and this uh, U.S. Uh, government had actually set up a whole, uh, I guess, financing agency to help finance some of these, uh, you know, Ethiopia to uh, actually be able to uh, pay for the more expensive technology, non-Chinese technology. And it just seemed like a really interesting look at sort of how this is all playing out. Tell us a little bit about that story and what that consortium was, what this financing agency was that was set up and, and how it all worked out. Yeah, each each of these cases in uh, developing world markets is, might be a little different, but in this one in particular in Ethiopia, there was a, a tender that is an offer by the government for a particular uh, segment of spectrum and the ability for the winning uh, bidder to then deploy network using that spectrum. Uh, the U.S., uh, along with um, other countries and private sector entities, put a bid together. Um, the U.S. financing agency here was the Development Finance Corporation, which um, is used to fund the projects in the developing world that help expand uh, infrastructure and can be used for other purposes as well. Um, they worked with uh, the United Kingdom headquartered company Vodafone to put a bid together and as well as number of other uh, entities that were also part of the, uh, the proposal because they were providing equipment to it. But they, uh, that is the Development Finance Corporation ended up putting forward uh, uh, the ability to, to borrow $500 million uh, for this consortium to establish, uh, it, it's, uh, the, establish the equipment and, and develop the deployment of a network. So it was a uh, kind of first of its kind exercise of such a large amount of money by a U.S. Uh, taxpayer-funded financial institution to help win one of these uh, one of these contracts or tender offers in a developing world country. There's been there's been other work to uh, establish uh, limited parts of networks or to provide some information technology in the past, but this was a a major undertaking for the United States to work with these partners. And it's worth mentioning too, that in any one of these networks, although Vodafone is United Kingdom headquartered and um, is the operator, the equipment that goes into a 5G or 4G or even 3G network is dominated largely by uh, US-based technology from the, uh, the, the routing, of, uh, routing provided by uh, companies like, like Juniper or Cisco, uh, to the uh, companies that provide the semiconductors and, uh, as, and to a, a wide variety of other companies that are involved in the design of the software that goes into these systems. And it was kind of interesting that in this case in Ethiopia that the, the loser was a South African bidder, MTN Group, which was backed by a Chinese investor. So you're really, you kind of see this geopolitical drama unfolding around, around this whole 5G uh, infrastructure story. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's it certainly is. It certainly is a a, a global uh, play because in in technology you need scale. So 
the, the companies that come together to provide these tender offers uh, to, to seek the, you know, to build networks uh, can't do it just for one country and can't just be indigenously created for that one market. They need the scale of having uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions, potentially of us users to help pay for the costs of the research and development and the manufacturing of the, the most cutting edge of equipment. So that necessarily means that when you look at even one country like Ethiopia, you're going to have a, a consortium of, of uh, equipment players, of finance companies, of uh, operators that are global in nature. I mean, the U.S. is going to have to be continue to be nimble in this area, right? I mean, I think this whole 5G story on its own is incredibly important. But even symbolically, you know, you've been you've you've seen on your own as a diplomat, and I've been reading, and others have been reading about how China and Russia, uh, and even Middle Eastern countries are moving into, you know, offering all these uh, low interest loans, and you know, all this money is being poured into Africa and Latin America in order to build that new layer of influence in the region in these regions uh, and so i guess the us is going to have to be really alert to more of these types of deals that may be uh taking place uh that could shift that geopolitical influence right absolutely and if you look at uh helping provide financing versus providing direct grants the financing will be repaid at some point and at a uh, sometimes slightly concessionary interest rate. But in the end of the day, they, if it's repaid and it's at an interest rate that's at least equal to what uh, the U.S. government is, is paying on its debt, on its treasuries, then the U.S. taxpayer is sort of held harmless at a zero cost, whereas large grants to buy infrastructure would, would be expended and not repaid to the, to the taxpayer. So, uh, the U.S. can be nimble on how it looks uh, in the world and try to find these these deals, work with private sector entities, and uh, help provide trusted, secure technology uh, to countries around the world. In all of your travels, as you were uh, doing all of these negotiations and having these conversations with all these countries, uh, other than sort of this Ethiopian story, are there any other stories that come to mind for you that that for you sort of represents the both the challenges and the opportunities here? Well, um, I, I would just say that in the couple of years that we had discussions with uh, countries, um, you know, it, it, it took some time for telecom operators in some cases to fully understand the, um, the, the risk that they might be bringing into their networks from having untrusted vendors. So that um, kind of iterative uh, dialogue between the United States and other governments and then their governments and their private sector uh, played out uh, over, over many months, if not years. And um, you know, that, I think, is still continuing, especially in the developing world. Um, so it's, it's a long-term process. I don't have a great example of uh, something culminating in the kind of decision that happened in um, Ethiopia but I anticipate there'll be more of those on a smaller scale basis where there might be uh, upgrades to networks that are not as sweeping as uh, the availability of a whole spectrum band for an entirely new network. You know, other than 5G, uh, you know, 5G is just uh, an example of this incredible global technology revolution that's taking place. You see it as uh, you've seen it as your as a former ambassador. I see it in my day-to-day uh, -day, uh, work in the technology space. Uh, how uh, is the U.S. government and State Department, other agencies, how are they gearing up for this technology revolution in terms of staffing and education and 
had resources because, you know, as you know, things are changing virtually every day in the realm of technology and particularly cybersecurity. Uh, it seems like it's going to require this massive transformation in the U.S. government in terms of personnel and expertise and focus. I mean, how, how, how's the government doing? That, that's a tremendous insight. Absolutely. They, they need the uh, folks that have those skills that can understand technology policy, especially as you look at the geopolitics behind this, um, the data that's created from any type of technology, not just 5G, is going to be something that's more and more important uh, for the national interests of the United States and for the national interests of other countries. It's going to be present in discussions about national security. It's going to be just present in discussions about economic success, and it'll be in very important to uh, discussions about uh, trade and, and trade agreements. Uh, there's been recently, in just the last few weeks, more discussion that even if the United States doesn't join something like the Comprehensive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, that you could still do uh, agreements, an agreement that's broad with a number of Asian countries about uh, digital partnership and digital cooperation. So setting rules about free flows of data, about uh, the deployment of technology across borders and about artificial intelligence. So that will be an area that you need skilled diplomats, uh, skilled technical people, people who understand uh, incentive structures, that the, the need for scale, the way that uh, technology is uh, designed, uh, developed and uh, manufactured across borders. That's just going to be a really important part to uh, the government helping the, the private sector in the partnership arrangement uh, achieve success. So I, I completely agree with that, that insight that we that the United States needs to continue to move that direction. We'll say that's something that's that's begun. Um, I know the State Department is looking at creating a cyber and emerging technologies uh, bureau that is their kind of the functional level. That's they have these bureaus that work on policy. Other parts of the government are built looking at building a more robust entities to look at uh, things like uh, semiconductor and providing semiconductor grants. So it will be a, a, a really a growth area for the government to be able to partner with the private sector on these uh, important international issues. Well, a lot of the energy will have to come from uh, younger engineers, younger generation of talent coming into the U.S. government. I mean, technology is moving at lightning speed and the government, governments, all governments move incredibly slowly. And, you know, there is such a demand for talented engineers in Silicon Valley that uh, it's, you know, how do you compete with the kinds of salaries and perks and all of these things that uh, the, uh, the tech sector can offer talented engineers. I mean, how do you attract top talent to the U.S. government to help it uh, keep up with and combat these incredible threats that we're confronting daily? Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. It is a tremendous challenge that there's no easy answer to. I think at the, the first level is just thinking about the supply of, as you said, engineers and those that are uh, that are that are conversant in technology. That is, how does you know the government and the private sector can work together on the education side, everywhere from you know the K to twelve on STEM education, and then in, into universities about uh, producing more talented individuals uh, in this sector because that will benefit the private sector, of course, but also the addition of, of individuals that are skilled in this area will make them available for the government. 
government will probably never be able to pay the same amount as the private sector or provide the same level of overall compensation, but there is the mission of, of, uh, of working for the United States that, that hopefully appeals to young people in the future. And uh, as we increase the pool of people that are in this space, that hopefully there's a certain percentage that will want to still go and work in the, in the government on this, at least for some period of time in their careers. Going back to the 5G issue, where uh, is the Biden administration and its stance on on 5G and its negotiations with uh, countries compared to the Trump administration, both in the level of uh, importance it's attaching to this issue and the way in which it's conducting those conversations? It appears that the Biden administration is carrying forward in a similar manner as, as the Trump administration had on, on 5G policy. It's made it an important part of the summits, for example, with uh, Japan and with uh, South Korea in recent months. Uh, there were outcomes of working together on 5G in both the statements that uh, ended, that culminated at the, at the conclusion of both the, uh, the Moon Summit and the Abe summits. So I think there's a strong indication that, that it's at the highest levels of the National Security Council, and National Economic Council in the Biden administration uh, to focus on 5G and technology policy. So I, I think there's a, large, there's a great degree of continuity. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on where you see 5G uh, heading in terms of adoption and speed and uh, you know global cooperation on on some of these big big security issues in coming months and years? Yeah, I think that we're going to see the continued deployment of these networks, which initially will uh, be things that we see showing up on our phones is the ability to uh, uh, have the level of 5G transmissions. Uh, in the in the bandwidth and low latency, but the real challenge of the next few years will be uh, for uh, countries to work together to partner together with the best of their technology to produce the amazing use cases for 5G. Again, talking about uh, how it can be used for remote healthcare, how it can be used for autonomous transportation, whether in the form of individual vehicles or moving um, people through uh, seaports and airports or uh, the ability to use uh, the technology for all kinds of logistical controls and ways that will make uh, all forms of uh, the economy more efficient and more productive. So those applications are the next stage of focus for 5G. It's really the things that will be enabled when they talk about the internet of things environment. Uh, the transition from say a 4G network might've meant there were thousands of devices connected per square mile with 5G, it will be millions of devices that could be connected per square mile. That means there could be sensors on all kinds of things and, all, and on people as well. So the future is, is very bright for the potential to see 5G empowering so many more applications than we've even uh, dreamed about today. That's amazing. Rob, thank you so much for joining me on Techtopia and for this fascinating conversation. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. Thanks again for having me. Rob Strayer is a former U.S. State Department ambassador and deputy assistant secretary of state. He is now a technology executive at the Information Technology Industry Council, representing 80 of the most innovative tech companies in markets around the globe. 
While at the State Department, Strayer led the development of U.S. foreign policy on a wide range of technology policy issues, including privacy, data protection, artificial intelligence, technical standards, cybersecurity, and 5G supply chain security. He also led the negotiations with foreign governments about these issues. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.